you're a first-time guest, I'm so glad you're here. I'm the lead pastor, and today I'm going to preach on gluttony. So I'm so glad... No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. So glad you are here with us. Whether you're a first-time guest or a long-time church member, thank you for being with us today. And I, I do hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family. And uh, there are many of our church members who are still traveling, and so we're praying for them to get back home safely. But we are glad that you are here. You know, one teacher in a school gave her fourth graders an assignment. They were to take a piece of paper and write down the things they're thankful for. And as they did their work at their desk, she walked around and she looked at uh, what the children were writing. She came to little Johnny's paper and she was so impressed that among the things Johnny was thankful for were his eyeglasses. And she said, Johnny, I'm so proud of you that you're thankful for your eyeglasses. Because I know at fourth grade that's not always so fun, but I guess you're thankful because they help you see better. And he said, no ma'am. She said, well, then why are you thankful for your eyeglasses? And he said, well, they keep the boys from hitting me and the girls from kissing me. And uh, so I'm thankful for my eyeglasses. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know what you were thankful for this year, but uh, we are blessed. And I hope you took some time to pause and to think about some of those blessings, your family, your friends, your health, your freedom, your safety. Uh, all of those things we're so blessed to have. One little boy went to a a pool party, and after the party, his mom picked him up, and he got in the car, and he was showing her this bag of goodies that the host mother had given all the boys and girls that came to the party, and she said, well, I sure hope you said thank you to Mrs. Smith for giving you all those trinkets and goodies, and he said, well, no, ma'am, I didn't, and this mom, being very conscientious about teaching her son manners, said, why did you not say thank you? He said, well, I was going to, but the girl in front of me said, thank you to Miss Smith. And Miss Smith said, don't mention it. So I didn't. <laughs> well, you know, Thanksgiving, at least once a year, reminds us to mention it, to stop and to say thank you. And I hope you took advantage of that to say thank you to some people in your life who have been good to you, who have blessed you, uh, and uh, to recognize that gratitude is not just an emotion. It's an action where we actually express our gratitude. And I know this is going to sound cliche, and I know I'm supposed to say this because I'm a pastor, but I'll just be honest, you know, out of all the blessings that I have in my life, the greatest blessing is God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ and the fact that he died for me on a cross, that he would do that, that he would suffer in my place, that he would be my substitute where I should have been punished for my wrongdoing, for my sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, who did nothing wrong, said, I'll take his punishment. That is more than I can imagine. And it's more than I can ever be grateful for. And I know that I'm not the only one here this morning that says, really, I'm so grateful for all the blessings of my life. But Jesus Christ is my greatest blessing. That does not minimize the other blessings. It just says... He is the greatest blessing, that I could be loved and accepted and forgiven, and all of that made possible through his death for me on the cross of Calvary. And so maybe you're a Christian, and I hope that you've taken this time of the year as well to not only say thank you to the people in your life who have been a blessing to you, but also to say thank you to God for all the blessings of your life, because they all come from him, but especially to thank him for Jesus who died for you on the cross of Calvary. For all the bad that you've ever done or ever will do, he took that punishment willingly when he died for you. And when he rose from the dead, 
And so we are so blessed. And what I want to do is talk to you today about a message I'm calling the great gift of gratitude. I want us to take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 and following. And I want us to look at a woman who took the opportunity to say thank you to Jesus for what he had done for her and for what he was about to do for her in dying on the cross of Calvary. And it's my prayer that in Matthew chapter 6, we will learn from the example of this woman of how we too should offer our great gift of gratitude to Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. And the bottom line is whenever you and I are grateful, our gratitude is more than an emotion. It's an action. It, it, it becomes the motivation for everything that we do. If you serve God or if you come here and we gather together and we worship or if you help the poor or if you give of your money or if you're trying to lead your family in the right way or you're trying to be a good person, do all of that not motivated by guilt, not motivated because someone's pressuring you to do those things, but do what you do out of gratitude to Jesus for who he is and what he's done for you. That is what we find here in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Let's just pause there for a moment. You notice we're here close to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're getting closer to Jerusalem. Jesus has become a man on a mission. He has turned his face toward Jerusalem and he is going there for the last time. He's not going to Jerusalem as a tourist. He is going there to die for me and for you. He knows that the cross of Calvary awaits him where he will be the sacrificial lamb of God so that God the Father can forgive us of our sin. He's going to be punished so we can be forgiven. He knows that's what's ahead of him. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem, but he's staying the night in Bethany. It's about two and a half miles from Jerusalem on the eastern side on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And he's staying in the home of a person that Jesus has changed his life. His name is Simon, and Matthew says he's Simon the leper. Evidently, there was a time in Simon's life that he was struck down with that debilitating disease that eats away at your body, beginning with your extremities. It, it eats away at your nose, your fingers, your toes. It disfigures you. It is a gruesome disease. And it was also a communicable disease. So when you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were ostracized from your family and your friends and your occupation. And you were even considered by the Jewish people, according to the Old Testament law of Moses, to be ceremonially unclean, so you were not fit to go into the congregation for worship. So you were ostracized even from the house of God. You lived a lonely life as your body rotted away. But one day, Simon met Jesus. And Jesus changed his life by physically healing Simon of his leprosy. So Matthew still calls him Simon the leper. Maybe we could call him Simon formerly known as the leper. You remember the period of time when Prince didn't want to be called Prince anymore and so he just kind of went by a symbol, you know. And so we called him uh, 
formerly known as prince. You know, well, maybe this guy could be formerly known as the leper. Jesus has changed his life. He's come to Bethany, Jesus has, on his way to Jerusalem. So Simon opens his home to Jesus. Jesus, please, you've got to stay with me. You've given me my life back. Everything I have is yours. It's all at your disposal. Be my guest of honor. So we find Jesus here reclining in the home of Simon the leper as the guest of honor. Now in that day, at a banquet or a meal, the people would not sit at a table in a chair like we do. Rather, they would recline at a low table. So you would recline, typically propping yourself on your left elbow, and you would eat with your right hand. Your legs would be extended out behind you, away from the table, which explains why it was customary to wash people's feet uh, whenever they came into the home before they sat down for a meal. And so Jesus is reclining at the table in the home with Simon the leper. And then something amazing and unexpected happens. Look at verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. This is a startling moment in the middle of a meal. That, that everybody's eating, they're talking, they're, they're sharing stories. You can only imagine all that's occupying the mind of Jesus as he knows what's ahead of him as he goes to Jerusalem. And then suddenly, in the middle of the third course perhaps, a woman barges into the room. And in her hand is this large alabaster, it's a stone flask filled with fragrant ointment, oil, perfumes. And she breaks the top, she breaks the neck of that flask she approaches Jesus and she pours it on his head all the way to the very bottom. In fact, there's so much it covers him from head to toe. In Matthew's gospel, it says she anoints his head. In John's gospel, it says she anointed his feet. The point is, it covered him from head to toe. She spared nothing. She held nothing back. Now, when she poured it over his head, this is not like making someone mad and they pour a drink on your head. No, when she is pouring this oil, it was also customary in that day not only to wash a person's feet before they reclined at the table, it was also customary to give them a basin of water to wash them and to anoint their head with oil, a fragrant oil that would refresh them and would smell good as everyone sits down at the table. And so in keeping with that custom, this woman anoints Jesus. Now Matthew doesn't tell us who she is, but we learn from John's gospel and the others, this is none other than Mary. This is the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Mary also had a sister named Martha. So it's Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That is who is doing this astounding thing and it's just amazing. Once she pours this out, the whole room is filled with that aromatic fragrance of perfume. And it was very expensive perfume, we're told. This isn't Axe body spray that you get on the bottom shelf at Walgreens. This is expensive perfume. We discover in the Gospels that it's worth a whole year's salary. And I remember as a kid reading that thinking, how can that be? How could you 
how could you have perfume that cost a whole year's salary until I became an adult to go buy perfume for my wife? Here's a 1.5 fluid ounces. It's only $80. She'll love it. Well, she better. I mean, you sure that's not just a sample? Don't I get a liter for $80? No, no, this is expensive. This is nice perfume. And so this woman is pouring out absolutely everything and not just leftovers and not just some cheap knockoff. She is giving away the most price, the most precious thing that she has. Some people speculate this was probably her wedding dowry. That alabaster flask could very well have been a family heirloom, but she gives it all away for Jesus. And the disciples, oh, they are furious. In fact, the word is they're indignant. Look at verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? I mean, they watch this happen, and then they think, What is she doing? She's wasting that. We would say in our modern vernacular, Just pouring it down the drain. What a waste. Don't you know how precious that is? Don't you know how expensive that is? Don't you know what we could have done with that if we would have sold that perfume? That money could have been put to good use rather than being wasted on Jesus. Doesn't she know? And you can just hear them reclining around this table murmuring to each other. Does she not know the food pantry is almost empty for the community? Do you know how much food we could have bought with that money? Maybe another disciple says, does she not know those kids at the orphanage have no shoes for their feet? Do you know how many shoes we could have bought for them? Maybe another one of the disciples murmured, doesn't she know the soup kitchen runs out of food at 1 p.m. every day? We could have bought enough food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But no, she wasted it. They are indignant. They are beside themselves. They are furious. Now, in John's gospel, he tells us that the most vocal of the disciples was Judas. John 12, verse 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And maybe you hear that and you say, well, maybe Judas wasn't all bad. Maybe there was some good in him. But John parenthetically adds, not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Judas didn't care about the poor. He said, I could have sold that. I could have pocketed some of that. And sure, we'd have given some away. He was thinking about himself. It's not about Jesus. So he's got very evil motives. But the other disciples, their, their motives weren't evil. It's just that their priorities weren't right. They saw this woman giving all that she had to Jesus as a waste. Just a waste. And I agree with them until I read verse 10. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me.
Why are you bothering this woman? Why are you talking about her like that? She's right here. She hears everything you're saying. I hear everything you're saying. Why are you troubling her as if she's done something bad? She's done something beautiful. She's not done something wrong. She's done something right. Jesus says she's done a beautiful thing for me. That's why she did it. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about what other people thought about her. The picture you get when you read this account in in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and, and John's gospel, the picture you get is that she's oblivious to them. Her focus is on Jesus. She's doing what she's doing because of him, because of what he has done for her, and because of what he is going to do for her. What has Jesus done for her? Mary became one of the early followers of Jesus. And I know sometimes in Baptist world, we give women the, 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 the short end of the stick whenever it comes to serving Jesus. And we act like what's really important are what the guys do. You know, those 12 disciples. And I'm not taking anything away from those guys. But read the Gospels and you will see how many women, some of them named, most of them unnamed, unknown to us, but known to Jesus and known to God, who served Him, who followed Him. The Bible says they gave Him their money. They opened their homes. They fed His disciples. They were even there when Jesus died on the cross when the guys fled. They followed his body to the tomb. She became an early follower of Jesus. And then her brother, who became a dear friend of Jesus, his name was Lazarus, when he became ill and died, Lazarus was in a tomb four days before Jesus showed up. And there Mary and Martha are weeping and wailing, and Jesus comes to them and tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and dies really never dies if you believe in me. And he he cried out to that tomb containing the body of Lazarus that at this point is now stinking. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible says Lazarus came walking out of that tomb alive. Jesus says, unwrap him from those grave clothes. And I like what the old country preacher said. If Jesus hadn't called Lazarus by name, every dead person in that cemetery would have got up. (laughs) And because of what Jesus has done for her, she is filled with gratitude and love. Whenever you meet Mary in the pages of Scripture, typically you find him at the feet of Jesus, feasting on the Word of God. And she does a good thing, a beautiful thing for Jesus. And she is doing this because she knows what he's about to do for her. In Matthew chapter 26, the same chapter we're reading in verse 2, Jesus had already said to his disciples, just after the Passover, I'll be crucified. And I think it went over the head of the men They were still arguing about what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. They were looking for a political, military Messiah. But Jesus came to be a suffering servant, dying for his people. Most kings, you die for the king. This king dies for his people. 
But most of the men have missed it. But Mary heard it. And she didn't have her theology all squared away. She didn't understand everything that was going to happen to Jesus or why it was going to happen to Jesus in the coming hours and days. But she knew he said he's not going to be with me very much longer. He said he's going to die. And if I'm going to do good for him, if I'm going to show my gratitude for him, I've got to do it now. So she took advantage of doing it now. Jesus says in verse 11, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus says there's a time and there's a place to help the poor. Jesus is not demeaning that. Anyone who knows Jesus knows his heart was for the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast. He says, but the poor will always be with you, but I will not always be with you. He knows he's going to die. And while nobody else seemed to catch it, Mary did. And Mary was moved with gratitude and compassion. She shouldn't have been the only one sensitive to the great gift of gratitude at this moment owed to Jesus. I mean, because you've got Mary there. But you've also got Matthew there. He's the writer of this gospel. You've got him there one of the disciples of Jesus. Remember, he was Matthew, formerly known as the tax collector. Remember? He was a Jew, but he had conspired to work with the Romans to collect taxes from the Jewish people, send it to Rome, so Rome could continue to occupy Israel. Rome had conquered the whole known world, including the Holy Land. And so for you to be a Jew, to work for the Romans, you were considered by your fellow Jews a traitor, And unclean because you had such contact with Gentiles. And you were typically unscrupulous because whatever you collected over and above your quota that the Romans expected, you got to pocket. And so a lot of people took advantage of their fellow Jews by charging them more taxes than what they owed. And Matthew Levi was a disreputable person as far as most of the Jewish people were concerned, until he met Jesus. Jesus showed up in his office and said, Hey, you, follow me. I've got room in my kingdom for people like you. I came for sinners. Why don't you follow me? I don't know about you, but I'm so glad Jesus still has room in his kingdom for disreputable people. People who are sinful. People who don't have it all together. People who are not perfect. Matthew is there in this home, and he should have had that great gift of gratitude welling up in his heart for who Jesus is and for what Jesus had done for him and what Jesus was about to do for him. You've also got Lazarus in this home, formerly known as the dead man. (laughs) You know, Matthew says, man, I was an outcast until Jesus gave me my life back. Lazarus, really? You're going to use that phrase? He gave you your life back. Great. He literally gave me my life back. I was dead, and he gave me life. Man, I was enjoying heaven, and I heard Lazarus, and boom, I'm back. And i got to die again. But I know what awaits me. His heart should have been filled with the great gift of gratitude for who Jesus is and for what Jesus has done for him and what Jesus is about to do for him. But it's just Mary who is moved with the great gift of gratitude. What was so special about her gift? Three observations and we're closing. The first is her gift was an indication of her gratitude. 
Her gift was an indication of her gratitude. The reason she poured it out is not because she had to. It's because she wanted to. It was an indication of her gratitude and her love for Jesus. And she did not count the cost. And come on, guys, you know how that is. You know that at Valentine's every year, red roses will cost twice as much as they do every other year, time of the year. But you don't care because your sweetheart is worth it and you pay it because you know you're in love. Guys, I was, that was perfect to say yes, amen. I'm trying to help you get, win some kudos with your wife. But you were afraid if you said amen, you're on the hook now <laughs> to get some red roses next Valentine's Day. But you don't count the cost. Or how about this? It's your anniversary or it's your sweetheart's birthday. And you go into that card shop and you don't just grab the first card that you find. No, you peruse those cards and you read every one looking for just the perfect turn of a phrase until it expresses your emotions. And you pick that card, you go to the counter and you pay for it. Not once having turned it over to look at the back of how much it cost. Amen. Right, guys? Help me here. Because sometimes love doesn't count the cost. Sometimes gratitude doesn't care about the expense. When you are filled with gratitude, you want to show it. And that is what she's doing. But there's a second reason that we find her gift so special. It was an indication of her gratitude. But secondly, it was an investment in his death. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Her gift was an investment in his death. You know that in that day, they did not embalm they're dead. Instead, the Jewish people would lovingly wash the body, care for the body, anoint the body with aromatic spices and oils like aloe and myrrh. They would then wrap that body in burial cloths or a shroud. And then they would gently place it there in that tomb and they would put even more Spices on top of the body. Sometimes 50, 60, 70 pounds of spices to cover the deceased. And Mary, Mary is spiritually perceptive enough to know that Jesus has predicted his death. But she doesn't want to wait until he's gone to show him how grateful she is. And so she just anoints him like you would anoint a king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. While my king is in his chamber, my perfume fills the room. Maybe that's what she was thinking. But Jesus said, I'll tell you boys why she did this to me. She's preparing me for burial. My uncle passed away about a month ago. I went back to Georgia and performed his funeral with his pastor. And I, knew, I learned something new about my uncle, John Hambrick, that I never knew before. The owner of one of the local florists came up to me at the 
visitation night and said, can I tell you something about your uncle? For over 20 years, every week without fail, he came to my flower shop and he bought flowers to take home to your Aunt Helen. I said, I didn't know that. She said, I asked him one day, John, why do you do this every week? Most guys do it on special occasions if then. And he said, you know, people usually send people flowers after they die. What good is that? I wanted my wife to know that I love her and I think about her. So every week, he took home flowers every Friday to Aunt Helen. And maybe Mary is saying, I know that it's when the person has died that we anoint the body. But I want to be a part of what he's doing now. It was an investment in his death. But there was something else to it as well. Her gift was an invitation to us all. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus says, let me tell you something, guys. Wherever in the world this good news about who I am and what I'm going to do on the cross and my resurrection, wherever that gospel is proclaimed, along with that story, there's going to be another story. It's what Mary did for me. And I believe that one of the evidences that the Bible is trustworthy and true is Jesus' words have been fulfilled. Bethany is 6,477 miles from Jerusalem, or from Jacksonville, Florida. And the reason I know that is that the first service, one of our senior adults Googled it. And she told me after the service, because I said, I don't know how far away Bethany is from Jerusalem. So after the service, she handed me a piece of paper, 6,477 miles, Pastor. And 21 centuries later, at 11428 McCormick Road, we are talking about Mary and what she did for Jesus. That's one of the evidences that the Word of God is true. And what she did is an invitation to us, do the same thing. Do what Mary did. Recognize that gratitude is not just an emotion. It is an action. Often we feel grateful. But we don't ever express it. But you know, it's been said, if, if you feel grateful but you never express it, your unexpressed gratitude feels like ingratitude to other people. Well, they ought to just know I appreciate what they do. Well, they may not just know. Sometimes you need to express it. And Mary expressed her gratitude, and it becomes an invitation to us to do the same. Now, there's a way in which we can never do what Mary did. We're living on this side of the cross in the resurrection. Mary was living on the other side of the cross. We don't have Jesus physically with us, but we can serve him not out of guilt not because we've been pressured or manipulated, not because it's what religion tells us to do, not because other people are watching, but we ought to do whatever we do out of gratitude to Jesus for who he is and what he's done. If you sing praise, sing because of who he is and what he's done. 
If you read your Bible, read it so you can learn more about who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. If you serve in this church, don't serve because, well, they needed somebody. Nobody else would do it. I don't know how long I'm going to have to do this. No, you do it because you know who Jesus is and you know what he's done for you and you want other people to know. If you put money in that offering plate, God bless you, but don't do it for a tax write-off. Don't do it because a preacher made you feel guilty or manipulated you. Do it because you know who Jesus is and you want him to be known by other people. That's why we should do what we do. It should be our great gift of gratitude. When you go to work tomorrow, do what you do because you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. When you go to school, do the best you can because you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. When you seek to be the kind of person or spouse or parent or child or or friend or neighbor that you ought to be or citizen that you ought to be, do it because you know who Jesus is and you know what he's done And out of gratitude, you just want to live in such a way to express your thanks to him. Dear friend, that covers every aspect of your life. Your memory of who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do for us in the future will motivate you to just live out of gratitude. Now, my wife knows I love her. And I'm an emotional person. I don't know if you ever noticed that. (laughs) I'm an emotional person. That's just who I am. That's, That's the way God wired me. I don't put on, I don't fake. I am who I am. But I'm not always emotional. That may shock you. Because you only see me on Sundays, and I just can't help but to get emotional about Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm just, that's just who I am. But I love my wife. And sometimes, man, it's romantic. And sometimes it's emotional. But other times it's not. Love's not always romantic. Love's not always emotional, right? Sometimes I express my love by sending flowers, even though she says, how much do you spend on that? And other times, I show my love to my vacuum in the floor, clean the bathroom. (laughs) She's not here. And listen, whenever we come to worship and we we talk about serving Jesus and showing our gratitude, sometimes it may be emotional, but you may not be as emotional as the next person. You may not be as outward. If you don't raise your hand, that doesn't mean you don't worship God as much as the next person does. If you don't get teary-eyed like your pastor, that doesn't mean maybe I don't love God like he does. No, we're just different. The point is... Gratitude is not just an emotion, it's an action. And that is something we can all demonstrate in our own way every day as we live. We live out of gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for us. That's what I want to challenge you with. Have you ever been moved to show your gratitude to Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, and for what he's done for you, giving his life on the cross of Calvary? Find a way today, find a way this week, to show your gratitude to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love for us. Father, we thank you for sending that great gift of your son, the Lord Jesus, for us. And we thank you that he died for us, not as a victim, but as a volunteer. He said, Father, I am willing to lay down my life. And I'm willing to take my life up again on behalf of sinners. God, we thank you for that. We could never repay you. You don't even ask us to try. But we do want to live by offering you the great gift of gratitude, not just once a year, but every day. That whatever we do as a 
human being, whether it's in our family life, our friendships, in our church, in our work, with our finances, with our health, with our hobbies. Let us just live with an overwhelming sense of gratitude for who you are and what you've done, and let us show it by how we live. Let us serve you every moment of every day. Let us not count the cost. Let us not see how little we can give of ourselves. We know we can give too little of our time, but we can never give too much. We could give too little of ourselves to you, but we can never give too much. We could give too little of our money to you, but never too much. We could give you too little of our love and devotion, but never too much. So, Father, today help us to express our great gift of gratitude for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.